I'm Chris Motz, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. Summer is here. Very excited. We just got through our summer primary this last week, June 7th. I hope you all are excited about the approaching general election in November. For those of you that will have uh, races in your district, some of you out there I know um, won't have races. I was just calling up uh, a Catholic uh, who won a race the other day, and uh, hey, he is a legislator elect, doesn't have a November election, which is very exciting. And of course, June, this is Dobbs month, and uh, we will bring you all the latest and greatest on that very important forthcoming decision as soon as it breaks, uh, which is expected to be really um, at any moment now. As we are recording here on June uh, 10th, you're going to be hearing this on June 13th or 14th, uh, the week of June 13th. We've got decision days. The Supreme Court has announced it is going to be releasing decisions on both the 13th and the 15th. Um, So those potentially could be Dobbs days or later in June, no later than the end of the month. But the moment you have all been waiting for, as you know, uh, Chris Motes, I have I've slid over to Chief of Staff uh, the Diocese of Sioux Falls, and we have been in the hunt for uh, an Executive Director of the South Dakota Catholic Conference. I am very pleased that, without further ado, drumroll, please. This is the episode in which we get to introduce the successor to the South Dakota Catholic Conference. So, without uh, any further delay, Michael Pauley. Rapid City, South Dakota. Michael, welcome to Faith in Politics. I'm pleased to be with you, Chris. Michael, I am just really delighted uh, to introduce you to the Faith and Politics audience. For all those that are invested in the work of the South Dakota Catholic Conference, or just uh, even casual listeners to this this podcast, grateful that you're on the program, so grateful that you're uh, taking over the reins of the South Dakota Catholic Conference and we're just going to spend a little bit of time today visiting and kind of unpacking a little bit who is uh, the next director of the South Dakota Catholic Conference, Michael Pauley. So, Michael, um, there's so much that that we're going to talk about, um, and I'm hoping that we're going to just spend more time together on faith and politics in the future as you slide into the the driver's seat and um, I sort of fade into the color commentary, color commentary role. But just to kind of... Um, Maybe help listeners get to know who you are. Uh, this is a this is a huge moment for the for the Catholic Conference, and we all want to know who are you. So, would you mind just sharing? Let's start with uh, who are you? Where are you from? Tell us a little bit about kind of your just your background, your upbringing, and uh, and what makes you who you are. Sure, Chris. Well. Thanks. And, you know, at the outset, I just want to say that uh, more than one person has remarked to me over the last few days that uh, I have big shoes to fill. And uh, I certainly agree with that. Uh, I can um, I can succeed you, but I cannot replace you. I'll just put it that way. And uh, it's just been a, a real pleasure seeing what you've done in really five short years with the South Dakota Catholic Conference. And uh, um, it's it's no exaggeration to say that South Dakota is a better place to live because of what you have accomplished over the last five years. Some of the incredible bills that have been passed with the support of the Catholic Conference. So uh, I do feel just very humbled to step into this position and uh, and I'm just grateful for you uh, helping make the transition uh, very easy. 
Um, so yeah, with regard to just who am I, um, I grew up in a military family. Uh, uh, early childhood was the 1970s. And, uh, you know, most people will, uh, who were alive back then will recall that the 70s were sort of an era of great political cynicism and also cultural dissipation, you might say. Yeah. Uh, but I actually was sort of insulated from that, you know, grew up in a fairly traditional community, military family where, you know, loyalty to family, loyalty to the church and loyalty to the country was sort of just uh, ingrained uh, in our culture. And so um, went to, uh, you know, my education was uh, K through 12 uh, public schools. Um, I think the schools I went to, I would characterize them as undistinguished, but maybe less troubled than a lot of what we see in public schools today. And uh, then went to school at Georgetown University, where I was enrolled in the School of Foreign Service. And that was kind of a turning point in my life uh, when I got to Georgetown. Well, and I, I mean, I find that part of your background so fascinating too. And I think it's just going to be incredibly helpful for you as Catholic Conference. I mean, because in a school of foreign service, George, Georgetown or elsewhere, like at the heart of the training is really, it's statecraft. Is that yeah. is that a fair assessment? Yeah, we, we actually did get instruction on how to communicate, um, you know, effectively. And, uh, and so even though I never pursued um, the foreign service as a career, I do feel that the things that I learned there, you know, have stayed with me uh, throughout my life. Um, another thing that I would uh, remark about Georgetown, and some of your listeners who are familiar with the institution may grin a little bit at this, is that um, I actually received a very good Catholic formation while I was at Georgetown. And, and again, some people will find that humorous because Georgetown has a uh, I would say a deserved reputation as an institution that struggles with issues of its Catholic identity. Um, you know, a lot of, lot of troubles there, both when I was a student and, and extending even to today, but there was a core group of uh, Jesuits there, uh, men like uh, Father Thomas King, Father James Shaw, Father Robert Spitzer, who I'm, I still stay in touch with uh, to this very day. And uh, those men were just really instrumental in forming me into the person that I am today. And so um, this, despite Georgetown's shortcomings, uh, I, through a lot of discernment, I managed to hone in on the people who could give me a really good formation there. And I'm just you know, really grateful for what those men have taught me. Yeah, and for some listeners who, you know, maybe are kind of aware of the catalog of books that are published by Ignatius Press or, you know, kind of various corners corners of the internet, even like uh, Focus, Fellowship of Catholic University students has had this relationship with Robert Spitzer. That's where I first encountered him actually as a young person okay. was through Focus yeah. at one of their conferences. But these are like uh, intellectual giants. So what a privilege and treat to really um, receive formation firsthand and, I'm personally hopeful that in the future we could maybe explore some of their their thought and their works. Uh, Father Shaw especially has got a great, well, it, yes. not to the exclusion of the others, but I'm just more familiar, I guess, with his his work in politics and um, political yes. writing. So yeah, that's that's wonderful. What a, what a great yeah. formation. Yeah, I took uh, Christian and medieval political theory from Father Shaw when I was at Georgetown. And I, I always remember him because he'd come to class every day and say, I just can't teach you everything you need to know in an hour. So here's a stack of 10 books. And if you really want to be learned in this stuff, you simply have to read these 10 books. Don't count on getting it all from me. And I, uh, that's I always, awesome. 
Yeah, he had the biggest reading list of any professor I had at Georgetown. Well, and so Shawl is S-C-H-A-L-L. And for listeners that like to read, you could go on the internet and Google Father Shawl's Lifetime Reading List. And he's got this list that's out there. And it's like, if you want to be a well-formed mind, here are the 100 or 200 books you simply must read. That's so funny. I actually didn't know that that was online. It's really, so. it's really great. So anyhow, yep. that's, that's a great, a great formation. And I think your, your time at Georgetown is really uh, just a, a great bedrock in statecraft because really the Catholic conference is bringing soul craft into statecraft and for your, for that bachelor's degree, it's going to be great. So Michael, yeah. it, let's pivot. And just um, after po- or after college you got is when you started first getting involved in politics. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I worked a number of jobs uh, on Capitol Hill and also in various states. And, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, I I won't kind of walk through the whole resume because that could get uh, kind of dry. So maybe just focus on one really uh, important experience for me was I had an opportunity uh, in the early 1990s uh, to work as a legislative aide and also communications director for Congressman Chris Smith uh, of New Jersey. And uh, some of your listeners will be familiar with Congressman Smith. Uh, he's been the longtime chair of the Pro-Life Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. And yeah. so for several years, I was kind of in the very thick of all of the battles related to abortion and other dignity of life issues that were raging on Capitol Hill back at that time. And, uh, you know, he was just a real important role model for me. I, I think of him as a modern day William Wilberforce. And, mm. and in fact, he himself really identified with William Wilberforce, the great um, anti-slavery leader uh, in Great Britain. And uh, yeah, Congressman Smith was a big, um, big inspiration to me. I once, I once asked him, you know, when you have to go down and do these debates on the floor, um, and you're under all this stress, uh, how do you prepare for it? And he looked at me and he said, Michael, read the Psalms. He said, I never go into debate, you know, without reading the Psalms first. Mm. And at that time in my life, I must confess, the Psalms were not of interest to me. I, I, I thought it was so much bad poetry, uh, <laughs> but Congressman Smith, you know, uh, said, you need to read the Psalms. And so Beautiful. I have gotten much more, um, uh, deep into the Psalms and really incorporating that into my spiritual life. So anyway, he was a great mentor and, and he's still there. That's the amazing thing is that I was working for him back in the early 1990s, but right. here we are 2022 and uh, he is still fighting the good fight there in Capitol Hill. Yeah. A, really Chris Smith, a giant of a pro-life legislator, as you say. Um, and, you know, just the political dynamic in New Jersey too, like uh you know, really a statesman. He understands the, there's an art to politics and he yes. he's very much committed to mastering the art by yeah. by every testimony I've heard. So yeah. wonderful reputation. So uh, also, you know, um, Michael, you so you live in Rapid City and you're a married man. That's your vocation. Can you tell us just a little bit about your family? Sure. Well, uh, my wife and I married uh, kind of late in life. We were both actually pushing 40 at the time that we got married. Uh, but uh, despite our advanced age, God uh, saw fit to bless us with two wonderful children. Uh, we have two girls, uh, ages 12 and nine. And um, yeah, I just, um, 
I'm very blessed. I, I just, I have a very forgiving wife and uh, well-behaved children and uh, <laughs> just feel very blessed that way. And we love life in Western South Dakota where it's much warmer than the part of the state that you have to live in. Yeah. <laughs> we, during the winters. <laughs> this is, this is true. I always enjoyed my, uh, my wintertime treks to the West. Cause you know, you're going to get some of that sunshine and yeah, it's cer- <laughs> certainly true. Um, well, M- Michael, the, a couple other things I wanted to visit about, and as I was sort of teeing up some notes for our conversation, there's this confluence um, really that is going to make you such a, a wonderful Catholic conference director, I, 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 I firmly believe, because you, you possess this mix of both love of church, love of Christ, uh, at the same time as love of country. And so when I was kind of framing this for you, love of, love of church and love of Christ— as you were sort of responding to me with your own notes and thoughts, I was really struck by the the first sort of note you wrote, which is this question, why are you Catholic? And I was so struck by this, Michael, because in fact, this is a question that I've asked guests on the program. I was asking regularly different guests for, hey, tell me, why are you Catholic? Or, you know, if they weren't Catholic, um, tell me why you're a Christian. Because there's, and I, so tell us, I mean, this is the question that you've sort of teed up. What, what yeah. Michael Pauly, why are you Catholic? Yeah. Well, um, as you and I were discussing off air, Chris, I, I had lunch with an evangelical colleague once, and the, the, the subject of our lunch is we were talking about database management systems. So, you know, this was not a conversation where you had any inkling that any matter related to faith or spirituality was going to come up. We were talking about database issues. And, uh, and then just out of the blue, this evangelical uh, guy asked me, why are you Catholic? And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, there, there has to be a correct response to this question, but without any thinking, the words that came out of my mouth were because I can't think of being anything else. Hmm. And, uh, I remember at the time, uh, feeling very, uh, unsatisfied with that response because it, it lacked a uh, theological depth, but then, you know, with the passage of time, I've come to realize that, you know, it was probably a good response because it was heartfelt. And because I truly feel that way that, you know, when I think about um, everything about what it means to be Catholic, you know, the grace of the sacraments, the uh, incredible history of the church, you know, history of Christendom and how it's helped build up the culture that we live in today, you know, the art, the Mm. music, the, you know, just the, the everything Catholic, um, is got such depth and such beauty in it that um, I could never imagine sort of walking away from that inheritance and sort of saying, eh, I want to try something new. You know, that, that, that thought just has never occurred to me. Yeah. It's uh, just such a beautiful answer too, because I think, I mean, relating it back to representative Smith, I, I can't imagine being anything else. That, that's almost like the psalmist's response, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, it's uh, it's a, it's from the heart directly. Right. Right. Um, but it's one of the things too that I'm really struck by is just this conversation with the evangelical friend, uh, which I think these sort of friendships um, are is so near to the to the work of the Catholic Conference. There's such a beautiful collaboration, I think, in this age. And you know, one of the things I know that you've been influenced by, or one of the people, is uh, Richard John Newhouse, who is a yes. Catholic convert had been a Lutheran pastor, became uh, Catholic, but then with Chuck Colson founded this Evangelicals and Catholics Together and they produced this journal and 
Can you yeah. maybe just say a little more about, because I, I know you've had a long career working in, in policy and politics, just about uh, some of your relationships with others who aren't Catholic, uh, but co-laborers in the vineyard, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, some people um, have referred to the Catholic Evangelical Partnership as uh, foxhole ecumenism, and mm. uh, I, I really identify with that because uh, um, out of necessity, I think we've been forced to, um, you know, not not ignore our theological differences, but in a certain sense to, you know, draw a line around that, set it to the side and say, you know, um, we need to collaborate on those areas where we agree, uh, because the forces of the secular culture and um, and other negative trends in society are just uh, such an imminent um, challenge, you know, that, that we need to confront. And so I've actually for several decades been very blessed by uh, collaborative relationships with uh, non-Catholic Christians and uh, have learned a lot from them. Um, I greatly admire my evangelical friends for their love and devotion to scripture. Um, it, it has, in a sense, um, there was a time in my life where I didn't um, read scripture regularly and study mm. it and meditate on it. And I actually have incorporated that into my life, uh, in part because of the challenge posed by my evangelical friends. And so, you know, I, I have to give them credit in a sense that many of my evangelical friends have helped make me a better Catholic. Um, and also because of the questions they ask, you know, why do you believe this? And uh, why do you believe that? And, and when you don't have a good answer, that doesn't, that doesn't sit well. And so, so I've profited greatly from my relationships with those folks. You know, um, one of the things too I'm struck by, Michael, that is just going to be a, such a, a wonderful thing that you bring to uh, the work of the Catholic Conference in the state of South Dakota is, um, I mean, you're a you're a very very articulate, reasoned, uh, you're you're a smart you're a smart person. I mean, I hate to be too blunt about it, but and I've and I've heard that testimony from other collaborators that have appreciated that um, the Catholic uh, view, if you will, or the Catholic position. On, on, especially on these moral issues that are kind of at the heart of lots of different po policy debates, it's all well-reasoned stuff. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not simply like, well, that's, you know, God said so, therefore, it's, it's actually that, no, uh, God isn't, he's, he's, he's uh, there's a rationality to all of this. Right. Um, that, you know, and, and kind of back to these Jesuits at Georgetown that I'm really excited to see the way in which you sort of take this, this teaching um, and, and further unpack that in the future. Yeah. Um, okay. So this other element that I want to talk about of what, you know, what is a Catholic conference up to this love of country, this patriotism can, I, I know you're just, uh, you're sort of bursting with love of country. Can you help us understand who, uh, where does this come from in the life of Michael Pauly? Like, what's the yeah. what's your formation and background? Yeah, well, as as I alluded to at the beginning, you know, I grew up in a military family where, you know, I think in a sense patriotism was uh, second nature. Uh, and then in our town, um, it it almost just seemed to be natural that people had great loyalties to. Uh, local institutions, whether it's the, you know, the local VFW or the Rotary Club or the local scout troop or whatever, uh, people were heavily involved uh, in things. And as a young person, I didn't reflect on 
that reality deeply. You know, it's just, you know, felt like this is just the way things are. But of course, you know, now looking back on it, I realized that I was getting a formation. Um, and, and the message was that um, a life well lived is a life lived for others. And, uh, and mm. I saw that in the community, uh, you know, where I grew up. And, um, you know, uh, there's another little uh, experience I had. Uh, this would be in my teenage years. I It kind of ties into this whole theme of patriotism and reflecting on what that really means. I was uh, in a government class in my high school, and uh, we were doing some research project related to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And, uh, you know, what does uh, liberty and freedom mean, um, you know, for an American citizen? And in the course of doing research on this, I stumbled across this quote from a political science professor at Columbia University. And I, I wish I could remember uh, his name. That's long since uh, receded into the gray matter. But, uh, but I remember the quote, like I read it yesterday. Uh, this professor said that the, the essence of American liberty is the freedom of each and every person to go to hell in whatever way they choose. And the context of the quote made it clear that, you know, he was uh, speaking approvingly of this understanding of liberty. He, he wasn't doing this as a parody to show that this was a distortion yeah. of a correct understanding of liberty. He was sort of embracing this, uh, you know, I guess what you could call a, a libertine uh, understanding of what our, our freedoms mean as American citizens. And yeah. Um, it was kind of an epiphany moment for me hmm. when I read that because I, I remember, you know, kind of taking a deep breath and something inside me said, this isn't right. This can't be right. And I remember talking to my uh, teacher about it in school. And I said, I showed him the quote and I said, tell me this. I said, if every citizen lived a life of let's just say complete self-absorption and self-indulgence you know to as as the professor said basically trying to get to hell through whatever route most pleases them um our country would fall apart wouldn't it yes and the teacher just thought about it for a long moment and said yeah you're right yeah the country would fall apart if everybody embraced that understanding of liberty and so that was kind of just as i said like an epiphany moment for me where i realized that uh um, there are two different understandings about what it means, you know, what to, to be an American citizen. And, uh, and it wasn't until many years later that I encountered the writings of Pope John Paul II, where he writes so eloquently about how an authentic understanding of freedom is the freedom to do the good. Yes. You know? and, and when I read those words, you know, it tied it, it tied it back to that moment I had in high school where I said, this can't be what freedom really means, because if that's what freedom really means, then people like my father, who who uh, served two tours of duty in Vietnam, he wouldn't have gone off to Vietnam to to risk his life and die for right. freedom, if we understand it that way. That's that's yeah. right. You know, and what comes to mind is a, a quotation that we've, I think, repeated often on this show, but at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery yes. of human life. This great, you know, um, the sweet mystery of life uh, passage, as Justice Scalia referred to it. Um, yes. It's, of course, written by Anthony Kennedy, uh, kind of sadly, who did receive a Catholic formation, but it's completely, it's completely bunk. You're right. And I, I, this is maybe something that we could just unpack you know, in, in the future too, but 
you know, one of the things that I'm starting to witness and hear from is just younger people. Um, you know, so, not, not, I don't know if this is a, a what we'd call it a movement yet, but some of the millennials, some of the Gen Zers who are kind of having this epiphany of like, nobody ever told me this stuff about the true nature of freedom and happiness Yeah, actually just comes through uh, having an orientation towards freedom, that it's for something. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, so whether we're talking about, you know, sex or casual drugs or all sorts of different sort of things that can be super degrading and yes. empty. Um, yeah. yeah. So the, the formulation that uh, father Spitzer likes to give for that is it's the distinction between freedom from versus freedom for, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and, and that in our culture today, there's just a, a very, um, well, I don't, I don't know if it's the, dominant strain, but it, it's a major strain in our culture yes. that sees it as freedom from, freedom from responsibility, freedom from rules, freedom from, yeah. you know, any kind of restraints on what I want to do yep. instead of seeing it as freedom for the good, freedom to, 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 to contribute to human flourishing, both your own and, and of those around you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's a really great pithy way to put it. I remember I was in the Marines and Somebody gave me, or somewhere I found the book, uh, What Are Freedoms For? by John Garvey. Um, he, I think, was a teaching, either teaching or a dean at Catholic University of America Law School then. But um, yeah, a completely different uh, and necessary understanding. What a, what a great thing, though, that you had this experience in high school that has um, kind of stayed with you. Um, can you, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about um, uh, Father Newhouse already, can you just share a little more about how he influenced you and his understanding of like a rightly ordered freedom and the relationship between the faith and the public square? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I first encountered the writings of father Newhouse um, specifically when he was writing on pro-life issues. Uh, he was um, um you know, very much a vocal critic of Roe versus Wade when it came down. And so that's when I, how I was first introduced to him. But then I started reading um, all of his other writings on these broader issues of the relationship between faith and government. And, uh, and of course, as you know, Chris, his um, kind of landmark book on this subject was called uh, The Naked Public Square, which came out, um, I think 1984 was when that book came out. And there's a uh, a brilliant quote in that book, and uh, I, I printed it off here before we, we went on air, but uh, he says, the public square will not and cannot remain naked. If it is not clothed with the meanings borne by religion, new meanings will be imposed by virtue of the ambitions of the modern state. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading that, and it, it, it really crystallized something in my mind, which is that... Um, uh, I was raised, uh, at least, you know, what I was taught in school in public school was this sort of concept of the state as being um, completely neutral on matters of faith and religion and, and even morals. And uh, but what Father Newhouse reminds us is, is that um, that that's a fake neutrality. You know, the, 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 the public square is not going to be strictly neutral. If it, if it's not informed by values that come from our Christian heritage, 
it's going to be informed by values that come from a different ideology. And I think we've really seen that unfold over the last couple of decades. That's absolutely right. And and Michael, we are at the end of our radio time now. So I just want to say goodbye to our radio listeners. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, you can go to sdcatholicconference.org and click on our audio content. We'll see you next time. And back for our podcast listeners, we're going to keep talking because there's a little bit more here to, to actually unpack. Um, and that, I mean, the quotation you just shared, Michael, is just so latent with, uh, I mean, that's rich stuff that, that we could, we could spend a lot of time on itself. Just sort of the, the, the meaning that we have to have in things like this idea of like neutrality is there's like a, this, there's something completely false in it. Um, that I think has been, uh, there's been like a greater awareness of this in more recent years as certain elements of you know, progressive ideologies, just getting a bit more militant with kind of uh, taking over and claiming um, quote unquote neutral spaces. Um, to, I mean, the, the public library's drag queen story hour being sort of a prominent example of like, well, no, yes. ne- neutrality, everybody gets to use this space. Yeah. But we haven't actually answered the prior question of, is this good? And at the service of the common good in the community, which is, that is the purpose of uh government and a, a life yeah. together. Yeah. So, um, well, that maybe is a great point to transition into just kind of stepping towards the future and what you see as kind of a vision uh, for the future of the South Dakota Catholic Conference and the ways that it can really serve well all the citizens of, of, of the place in which we call home. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, certainly one aspect that I really want to work on is uh, brainstorming on ways that we can uh, greater bring about a greater engagement on the part of the laity um, in the political discussion in South Dakota. And obviously you've done, um, you know, fantastic work on this over the last five years, but uh, you know, when it, when it comes to uh, better forming the laity and and encouraging them to get involved. There, there's there's never any end to the work that needs to be done, um, and and you're well familiar with this concept that there's yep. far too many uh, of the faithful who uh, think of politics as it's something dirty, it's something a um, little bit uh, you know un. Um, Oh, I, I, the, the words escape me, but, but something that is not pleasant to engage in. And, and they have really had sort of internalized this concept that religion and politics just need to stay apart. You know, they, right. they just don't belong together. And that's kind of a heresy that we have to really <laughs> always be working against. And, uh, you know, the bishops, of course, came out with their uh, very impressive document called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. I've, I've read this. It's a good document, but it's almost 50 pages long. And yeah. so, you know, what, what I look at is I think very few people are going to invest the time and energy, you know, to read something that long. And so when I'm trying to explain to people, what is the Christian basis for being involved in politics? I like to go to something much shorter and more simple, and that is the Lord's Prayer. Mm. So every single time we go to Mass, we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we hear those words, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. And and what I like to remind people is that here's what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, thy will be done on earth, 
but not in the realm of politics. Right. Um, thy, thy will be done on earth, but not in Hollywood or not in the corporate boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies. You know, Jesus, yes. Jesus didn't set any boxes, you know, when he talked about that our, our, our mission needs to be, uh, you know, bringing about the Lord's will in the temporal realm. So when we think of politics, you know, politics certainly isn't the only mission field. And in, in certain contexts, you might even argue that it's, it's not even the most important mission field. But nevertheless, it is a field where we have to be engaged. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded of the old saying that uh, you've probably heard this before. People say, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. That's you right. Know? And, That's uh, right. I, I think I think especially uh, over the last couple of years, uh, you know, with the whole response to uh, the COVID uh, uh, epidemic, I think uh, a lot of people who maybe ignored politics uh, and felt like they could just sort of safely uh, take it for granted, you know, their eyes were sort of opened. You know, they they woke up and they realized that wow, you know, government leaders can decide whether or not you're allowed to go to church. You know, government leaders can decide whether or not your business is allowed to stay open. You know, and so I do think we're living in an era where people are uh, maybe uh, just a lot more engaged and and aware that they have to care about who holds power uh, in our system. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we have to keep that framework in mind. Thy will be done on earth as it is as it is in heaven. But of course, uh, with the art and science of politics, we, we also have to talk about where the rubber meets the road. So uh, in really concrete terms, the rubber meeting the road, what are some of the issues that you see kind of in the fore for the South Dakota Catholic Conference in the years ahead? Yeah, well, certainly, first and foremost, what you alluded to at the beginning of the show is that uh, we may be on the verge of seeing Roe v. Wade overturned. Uh, I'm hopeful for that. I don't. I don't. Despite the leaked opinion, I, uh, I'm of the view that um, I take nothing for granted. Yes. Um, I, I think it's possible that the decision could go in a number of different directions, but but I do um, think there's reason to hope that we're going to see Roe v. Wade overturned uh, before this month is over. And so um, I, I think that needs to be at the top of the list um, is uh, what do we need to do with South Dakota statutes to make sure that they are offered the most thorough protection uh, for preborn life. Now, obviously, South Dakota has got some great laws, many of which uh, you have helped uh, you know, uh, pass over the last several years. Uh, but yet that statutory framework is calibrated towards kind of the the legal regime that was allowed under Roe versus Wade. And now it, with, if Roe v. Wade is sort of out of the way, we need to just take a fresh look at all of those statutes and uh, and make sure that we've uh, got the most protective laws possible. Um, I guess some other issues that I, I'm really looking forward to working on. Uh, would include the uh, right of conscience legislation. And, you know, you've had a lot of background with this, Chris, um, especially uh, in the context of healthcare professionals. Yeah. Um, we, we have so many threats to the conscience rights of healthcare professionals, not just with regard to uh, abortion, that issue's been with us for some time, but now as we get into this whole new world of um, 
you know, rampant uh, confusion over gender identity. Um, there's there's all of these issues cropping up with the conscience rights of healthcare professionals to not be involved in uh, things like so-called gender transition um, uh, medical uh, treatments. Um, so so I think that we need to really uh, focus hard on that issue. Mm. And then I guess. Uh, Two others that I am near and dear to my heart, uh, educational choice. You know, I, 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 there, there's much room for improvement in South Dakota's laws uh, in terms of getting uh, parents the options they need to educate their children uh, in the best way they see fit. Uh, the passage of the homeschooling uh, reform law uh, last year was a huge step in the right direction, yep. but there's a lot of other things, obviously, that we can do and should do, you know, to make school choice more viable in South Dakota. Um, and then uh, one final issue I think we have to be concerned with is that there is this uh, marijuana issue on the ballot yet again. Um, it's back with us, the recreational marijuana ballot initiative. And um, I think there's just a huge education gap on that issue. I think far too many people, Catholics and non-Catholics alike, um, just don't take the issue all that seriously, perhaps. You know, they think, oh, you know, marijuana, it's not really a big deal. Um, and the truth is, is that it is a big deal. You know, this, this is um, a drug that has many adverse effects, not only on the individuals who use it, but on uh, those who relate to them, you know, their employers, et cetera. And, and so I, I just think that there's a lot of spade work that needs to be done in kind of opening people's eyes and getting them to realize that you don't want to go there. You, you, you don't want to go to this regime of uh, complete unregulated marijuana. Absolutely. Well, thanks for kind of giving us a primer because I, I totally agree that, that these issues are going to continue to be really uh, front and center in the years ahead. Michael, as we kind of wrap up our time here, I just want to maybe kind of three things in closing. First, just a bit of news uh, for anybody that's going to be in the Rapid City area on June 22nd, which is the feast day of St. Thomas More and Bishop John Fisher, martyrs of the English church, Thomas More, of course, uh, patron saint of politicians, statesmen, lawyers, uh, Bishop Peter Mewich is going to be celebrating a Red Mass at 11 a.m. Mountain Time at the Cathedral of Our Lady of Perpetual Help on June 22nd. That is the Feast of Thomas More. It's in conjunction with the bar, the State Bar Convention, which is out there. But really, anybody is welcome to come, uh, whether you're a lawyer, a politician, or others that simply want to pray for the good of this profession, the good of our country. And then next... Um, just want to remind you, uh, stay tuned for Dobbs news. We're gonna we're gonna bring you the latest uh, as we wait for this all important decision to come out. Uh, stay tuned for more on Dobbs. And then finally, just as um, as we look to the future with faith and politics, a show that I think we're on our hundred second, hundred third episode now, something like that. Been at it for a couple of years, um, Michael is gonna be sliding into the anchor seat. I'm gonna be sort of fading into the background. I have so much fun doing this. Michael is uh, graciously, uh, will be permitting me to, I don't know, kind of join from time to time as much as you want me to. Um, so I look forward to kind of spending more time with you all in the future, but uh, Michael will be your very able host and anchor moving forward. So with that, I just wanna say, everybody, it's been great. I'll see you uh, around, I'm sure. Uh, this is Chris Motes, and I'm signing off of Faith in Politics. And I'm Michael Pauley. Thanks for joining us today, and until next time, live well.